All right, we are going back to the book of Romans, and so you might as well grab your Bibles and flip open to Romans. If you are using your phone app or whatever, that's great. Uh, If you're using a Bible in one of the chairs around you, we're going over to page 950, um, and uh, we'll be looking at that in a moment. If 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 you're new around here, you may not know that we've spent the last 20 years going through the book of Romans. Um, not really, but it kind of feels like it. This is actually sermon number 50 in the series. And some of you are like, isn't that a little, you know, indulgent and extravagant? And nope, it is not. Uh, the book of Romans is, it is, they're all beautiful books in the New Testament. They're all beautiful letters. But the book of Romans is one of the most comprehensive and complete descriptions we have of the work of God to save individuals and recreate all of creation. And so, yeah, we've, we've spent some time navigating the details of this book, and we're going to be spending more, right? We're only halfway through. We covered one through eight, and now we're moving on to, to nine through 16. Um, but um, it's worth the investment, because if you can understand the scope of Romans, you understand the gospel, God's plan to redeem and restore both individuals and the whole of creation. Um, We are moving into one of the most notoriously tricky sections of the entire letter, Romans 9 through 11, uh, and specifically, especially Romans 9 is notorious. Uh, It deals with God's elective work in redemptive history. Um, as a young believer, I remember when I first was reading through the book of Romans and I came to the end of Romans 8 and Romans 9 and, and uh, man, it just kind of threw me for a loop and I, I just started doing a lot of reading and studying and, and um, I was about around a bunch of other young believers. We would go out and do theology, you know, like, like we'd go sit uh, at, at a, a midnight waffle place and argue and debate and and one-up each other on our theological knowledge and um, uh, here's the thing Romans 9 is deep theological waters it deals with God's sovereignty and his elective purposes throughout human history and um, here's the challenge I don't think my experience was unique there was a stage in which I grew to be fairly proud of my theological prowess I was fairly proud of my ability to navigate these waters, and it kind of made me feel a little bit superior to people who who didn't know as much as I did, who just showed up and and spouted opinions without having any sense of what the text actually said, and I could skewer them with biblical truths, and and, uh, what's ironic is that this passage is actually written to rebuke the very pride I was feeling. Romans 9 is a challenging chapter but it is relentless in its challenge of the pride people had in their theological understanding there are 25 questions in Romans 9 rhetorical questions the kind of questions that Paul asks not because he's looking for an answer but because his readers need to be confronted in their assumptions. It is a challenging chapter, and it was written to humble us and to free us into the work of grace. And so if we want to understand these chapters, um, we need to really understand how they fit into the broader purpose 
of the book of Romans. Um, often Romans 9 through 11 and specifically Romans 9 are studied in isolation as if Paul was just giving us a theological thesis that was meant to be studied in, 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 uh, without its context and, and so that we can, you know, be super smart about God and stuff. Um, but that's not what's happening here. This is a letter, and in this letter there is a context, and in that context there is a, a goal, and that goal isn't to puff up our heads with theology, it's to fill our hearts with humility so that we can move forward in the shared mission of the gospel, which is to love God and love others. So let's begin by taking a look at Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. And if you're wondering why we're going to Romans 16, I'll explain in a moment. All right, let's take a look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, so why am I uh, beginning our dive into Romans 9 through 11 by halting or, or beginning in, in Romans 16? Uh, because to understand Romans 9 through 11, we need, we need to understand why Paul is writing this letter to begin with, right? Um, what we read was actually Paul's final exhortation in the book of Romans. And, and it's not just some random thought tacked on at the end of the letter. Like, oh, hey, here's a great idea at the end of the letter I haven't talked about previously, but you know, I'll just throw it on because it's good advice. This is actually the central theme for why Paul was writing, writing to begin with. He wrote this letter so that the body, the church in Rome, would be truly unified. He was writing because the mission of the gospel requires unity and grace. Now, there are common ways to unify people. I would say worldly ways to unify people. And, and they are the ways that most of us know intuitively and organizations often use. Um, and we typically organize people around a common goal with a common enemy. That's an easy way to get people motivated. It's an easy way to get a group to, to have a strong sense of identity and a strong sense of purpose, a common goal and a common enemy. The problem is that's a divisive unity. It's a unity that is dependent on division. You draw a circle in the sand and you say, those are the bad guys out here and here are the good guys in here. And as long as those bad guys stay out here and the good guys stay in here, we're good. Right? And, and as long as we move forward to accomplish what we want to accomplish in spite of them, or even over their dead bodies, we're good. They're the enemy that unifies us. It is manipulative, fear-based, and prideful. That is a divisive unity. When Paul says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, the word Satan means the accuser, the adversary, the one who brings division. 
the one who is always finding other people's faults, the one who is always looking for how they fall short, the one who is, who is, is showing you why they're the bad guys over there, right? He will defeat Satan, and he will crush them under our feet, not as we become unified in our common enemy, not as we get unified in our common goal that is secondary to the gospel, but as we become unified in grace. As we humbly become unified in our experience of grace and our experience of love for one another and our love for God, the enemy is defeated. See, genuine unity isn't about a common enemy. It's not even about a common goal. Genuine unity is about a common experience of love. It is being loved by God and sharing that love with one another. See, Paul needs the Romans to both understand this and embrace this if he's going to achieve his goal. See, his goal is to travel to Rome and make Rome his home base for a new mission to Spain. Now, we know that that's not the way Paul's life turned out. His plan at this point, he did get to Rome, but it was, it was as a prisoner, um, and he never moved from Rome to Spain that we know of. Um, but that was his plan at this point, was to, to go to Rome and, and allow that to become his new home church, his new home base for this new church planting expedition to Spain, and that was going to require the Romans to grow in both their, their unity and grace and in the generosity of love. So let me give you the background context, okay? Uh, the church in Rome started when Jewish believers traveled there. Maybe they heard the gospel when, when they were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. We don't know, but what we do know is that the church in Rome began as Jews traveled back to Rome and then moved into the synagogues, the Jewish places of worship. And they started sharing about Yeshua, the, the true Messiah, Jesus, the, the, the Christ, the one who died and rose again, who was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. And so as a result, the church grew in Rome, but it was primarily Jewish in nature. Right? It would have been primarily Jews who went to the synagogues, but also Gentiles who had become converts to Judaism. So the pathway to Christianity came through Judaism in the early church. And so in the early Roman church, it was a body of believers that were made up of people that were very familiar with the Old Testament law, very familiar with Old Testament um, codes of conduct and, and, and the dress regulations and the food regulations and, and uh, the moral stipulations and, and all of those things, right? The problem is Emperor Claudius expelled the Jewish Christians from Rome in AD 49. Um, now, they expelled all the Jews, uh, which included the Jewish Christians. Uh, now, that doesn't mean he expelled the church, because the Gentile believers remained, and the church continued to grow. Uh, but now, instead of it being centered in the synagogues, it began growing outside of the synagogues. As a result, when Nero allowed the Jews to return the Jewish Christians returned to a very different church. The culture of the church had shifted. Now it was dominated by Gentile believers. 
people who didn't have a Jewish background or a Jewish understanding of the world, people who didn't come to Christ through the Torah, the Old Testament law, but instead came to Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the commonalities they had with other Gentiles. It was now a culture dominated by a non-Jewish culture. Now, these would have also more than likely been higher caste Gentiles. In the beginning, it would have been We know that the gospel spread in the beginning primarily through the impoverished and the marginalized in society, those who had no power um, and those that were um, often more victimized by the privileged. Um, But as it grew, um, we saw socially superior um, people coming to faith in Christ. That happened in Antioch, that happened uh, in Rome. But as a result, you end up with a Gentile-dominated culture. And you're thinking, what, what, Steve, what are you, why? Why are we talking about this? What, this is so, because that has a huge impact. It has a huge impact. Um, every organization, every group, every family, every town has a dominant culture. And you don't notice it if you're part of it. You're like, there's no culture here. There's no dominant culture. It's just the way we do life. It's just us. Oh, that's like asking of a fish if there's water. You know, of course the fish doesn't know the water because that's what they swim in. Have you ever been in a context where you were part of the minority culture? Have you ever gone to a church that was really different from what you grew up in? Maybe, maybe a charismatic church, or maybe that's what you grew up in. You went to a Presbyterian church, or maybe, maybe you went to an African-American uh, church, but... but the way they do worship can be disorienting. When you're part of the minority culture, suddenly you're like, hey, that's not how I do it, and I'm not really sure I'm comfortable with this. This, this makes me feel weird, a little uneasy. I don't know how to do what they're doing, right? If you go to a church where they do all the liturgy with the standing and the sitting and the standing, you're like, I don't know when to stand. What are they, they're kneeling? Like, you just, you feel like you're sticking out. It makes you uncomfortable, The Jews left, and when they left, the church was a very, very familiar place to them culturally, but when they returned, it was like they came home to a house that had been completely renovated without their input. They didn't know where the shelves were that had the dishes anymore. They, They were fumbling around the kitchen trying to find the spices, and they weren't there. And not only that, there was stuff cooking on the stove that they would never eat because it wasn't allowed by Jewish law. And, and remember the, the, the early church, man, they met, when you think about Rome, don't think about a big cathedral. They met in house churches. They met from home to home and they primarily met around meals. And so they're coming back into an environment where the shared meals are now a confrontation, not just of culinary tastes, but cultural and religious and spiritual convictions. They're being confronted at every meal with people that make them ridiculously uncomfortable. That are, that are like, they're like, I, I'm not even sure I can sit with you because I'm convinced you are abhorrent to God right now in what you're choosing to do, how you're choosing to engage life. Kind of hard to come home and feel like you're not even welcome in your own house. So I want you to catch this. In Rome, there were the pre-existing cultural prejudices that were already there, right? So, so the Jews saw the world through the lens of Jew and Gentile. 
right? Gentile, the Greek word for Gentile, ethnos, it simply means all the other ethnicities. There were the Jews who were the elect ethnic group, the elect race of God, and then all the other races, all the other ethnicities of the world. And so when they divided the world into Jew and Gentile, they divided it into God's elect and non-elect. God's privileged and God's not so privileged. The ones who are rich in covenant history and those who are bankrupt in their experience of God. There was a sense of superiority. There was a sense of pride. But more than that, there was a sense of spiritual superiority. Um, they saw the world as, as Jews and Gentiles, and they saw the Romans as Gentiles. They brought those prejudices into those relationships. But the Romans also brought their prejudices. The Romans saw the world as divided up between Romans and barbarians. Um, barbarians were anybody who didn't speak Greek. The Romans were highly cultured and, and um, deep in, in Greek philosophy. Um, they had adopted the culture of Greece and, and the language. And, and, um, and so when people came, because Rome was a, an economic center and a cultural center, people would come from all over uh, the known world at that time, and, and, and they would come. And when they came, they spoke these languages, and they would make fun of them. They're like, bar, 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 which is actually how the word barbarian was created, right? They made fun of the languages they were hearing. It didn't sound intelligent to them. These people were obviously stupid, less cultured, and less qualified for honor. They were barbarians. So the Romans saw the world as barbarians, and to them, the Jews were barbarians. They were part of that outer group of people that were to be rejected because of their lack of sophistication and intelligence. But on top of these ingrained superficial prejudices that were embedded in their cultures were the deep set of inclinations to judge and despise people who are other. The Jews felt morally superior to the Romans. They judged the Gentile Romans for their lack of moral clarity. The Romans felt superior to the Jews, the Roman believers, because the Roman believers were like, this new faith has freed us into all kinds of new joy and freedom. And they saw the Jews so restricted by their consciences, so restricted by their, their moral codes and their sense of propriety that they despised them for not being mature in the faith. This is a mess, y'all. Are you catching that? And it's just like us. It, it, people judging each other, people despising one another, People looking at them and saying, you're a sinner, you don't belong here. And other people saying, you know, you need to just grow up. What is your problem? Don't you have any maturity in Christ? I mean, it's just, it's a mess. And uh, Paul has two goals in writing to the Romans. He wants to get them to grow in their experience of grace so that they can grow in the generosity of grace, right? To get them to stop judging each other and despising each other. And to stop feeling so self-justified in despising each other. So self-righteous in their judgment of one another, right? That's the first. And the second is, is that once he has freed them into a deeper experience of grace, that they might grow in a deeper generosity of the gospel. That they might even come to love the people in Spain. People, both of them, would be tempted to despise because they were both Gentiles and barbarians. 
but not only get freed into generosity to stop despising them, but to actually come to love them to the point that they would invest their finances and their energy into reaching them with the good news of Jesus. That they would become the actual home base for Paul to then move the gospel and do church planting work in Spain. So when Paul wrote the letter of Romans, um, he had a purpose, right? Romans 16 tells us that he sent it with uh, a faithful friend. Her name was Phoebe. Romans 16.1 tells us, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, Greek word there is diakonos, a deacon of the church of, and you can read this as centria, that's how we would read it in English. It's it can crei is the Greek pronunciation that you may welcome her in the Lord um, and as worthy of the saints help her in whatever she may need from you uh, for she has been a patron of many as myself as well so Paul instructs them to meet her needs she's traveling with the letter she's probably going from house church to house church reading the letter aloud to the the gathered believers answering questions she is paul's emissary with the letter to the church in rome and as she is traveling um, she is helping people understand it now we have sat down with phoebe and with paul and have covered the first eight chapters of the book of, of romans and In order to enter Romans 9, what I want to do is just give you a whirlwind summary of where we've been, okay? Because once again, it's been a long time since we've touched it, and because we're always in the details, it's easy to lose the big picture. So you ready? Here's here's Romans 1 through 8 in a whirlwind. Romans 1 opens up with Paul giving a provocative statement to the Jewish and Gentile believers. In Romans 1.18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is, present tense, revealed against those who want to ungod God and who are acting in unjust ways to those who are created in his image. Those who want to be God instead of humbly depend on God. They want to replace God instead of follow God. They want to be little gods, ungodliness, but are also unrighteous, unjust. They seek to exploit others instead of enrich others. They want to benefit off of the weakness of others instead of make others strong. They, they want to um, use their privilege for their own uh, benefit instead of leveraging their good for the good of others. This abuse, both of God and of those created in the image of God, makes God really mad. The wrath of God is revealed. God's mad that we are destroying his good creation by trying to be him and by trying to one-up those created in his image. Now, this is a brilliant opening because over the course of Romans 1, as he describes this, he gets everybody in the room going like this, all right? Everybody in the room, the Jews are like, yep, those people are sinners, right? And the Romans are like, yep, those people have no honor. Yep, those people, God's wrath is justly deserved by people like that. And then in Romans 2, man, Paul yanks the carpet out and lands them on the floor. He gives them a gut punch. And Romans 2 and 3 um, are, are his uh, argument um, into really to, to wake them up, right? Paul unified them in Romans 1 around a common enemy. 
He's like, the wrath of God is revealed against people like this. And people are like, yep. And then in the beginning of Romans 2, he's, instead of unifying them around their common enemy, he, he shocks them with their common problem. He says, therefore, you who judge, you are without excuse because you do the same. You know those people you despise? You are what you despise. You know those people you judge? You are what you judge. Those artificial lines that you draw on the sand that help make you feel so superior and self-righteous, that make you feel morally better, right? Whether it's, whether it's because some people like candy corn and you hate it, right? Or you ever notice how we can moralize absolutely everything, right? It's not just, I don't like candy corn. It's, you are stupid for liking candy corn and are morally repugnant. You notice this on social media? It's not just, I don't like decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving. It's, you're the reason it's snowing. Because you people are decorating too early, right? We don't just say, I disagree. We moralize everything and make ourselves feel superior about every difference. And Paul's like, man, those artificial lines in the sand that make you feel so superior to others, they're imaginary. They're not real. There aren't three groups of people in the world, God, the good guys, and the bad guys. There's just two, God, and people desperately in need of grace. That's it. And if you're not God, you're in the other group, right? You are what you judge. The Romans thought they were worthy because of their accumulated honor and success, and, and the Jews thought they were worthy because of their rich history and, 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 and covenant uh, relationship with God and their moral achievements. Now, the Jewish sense of, of superiority was much more complex, and so Paul actually spends most of his time in these chapters dismantling their pride. But the section concludes by bringing both Jews and Gentiles to see their common need right? In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have been born with the brokenness handed down to us from our first father, and all of us are falling short of the human job description of actually imaging God. We're not imaging God, we're trying to replace God. We fall short of the glory of God. We do not bear the honor of having been created in the image of God because we defame that image by trying to defeat others, by, by trying to belittle others, by trying to somehow make ourselves morally superior to others. We have a common problem. And then Paul turns in the end of Romans 3 and 4 to our common hope, right? That we actually have a way to be delivered. And it's not by fixing ourselves. It's not by improving ourselves. It's not by climbing the hill of moral self-improvement. Um, even though we are all sinners, we can all be made new because we have a God of grace. The end of Romans 3 explains how Jesus was our propitiation, our substitute, that, that he died for us, that he, he took that wrath that we deserved and died under our judgment so that we could be forgiven. He paid a price we couldn't pay so that we could receive a blessing we couldn't earn. And then he invites us into that blessing simply by faith. 
simply by responding to his love and trusting in his work. We are invited to receive this grace through faith. In fact, in Romans 4, 5, he says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. God's like, you want the blessings of the resurrection? They're all yours. Here's the requirement. Show up with nothing but your need. If you show up with nothing but your need, you will get everything. But if you show up trying to earn what you can never earn, you will miss the blessing. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the requirement of grace, is we show up with nothing but our need. And then God, who honors our need, a God of grace who honors our brokenness, a God of grace who forgives our sin and makes us new, covers us with an alien righteousness, his own righteousness, not ours. Our faith is counted to us as righteousness. That's the beauty of grace. Now Romans 5 goes on and expands this view of the gospel and and, and in Romans 5 he compares Jesus with Adam to show us that Jesus isn't just in the business of redeeming individuals. He's on a mission to recreate humanity. He didn't just come to be our individual saviors. He came to be a new Adam, a last Adam, a true and better father of the human race who would in fact create a new human race in his own image, redeeming them from the image of their broken first father. And then in chapters six through eight, Paul explains, having been redeemed, having been forgiven, having received this gift of grace, how do we grow in that grace? What does it even look like to grow in grace? And in Romans 6, 7, and 8, we see this beautiful truth that that in the same way we came to faith is how we grow in our faith. Not by working for God, but by resting in the love of God and training our heart to respond to the love of God in growing humility and in growing love for the God who loves us and in growing love for others who are created in the image of God. And that's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a mess. It's going to feel like you you hit the slide and you slid right off the map and you might actually be making more progress in that moment than you ever thought you were because the work of grace isn't about you becoming better and better and better. It's about you becoming more and more humbly dependent and more comfortable in that place of absolute dependence on God and responsiveness to his love. Because God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. That's kind of the the, the crowning moment of Romans 8, right? You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In the same way you were born in the image of Adam, he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of of the last Adam, so that you could be human as humans were created to be. You can fulfill the human job description. You can, in fact, be covered with the honor of the Imago Dei, the image of God, not just individually, but collectively, together, imaging God 
in love for God and in love for one another, leveraging your power, your strength, your creativity, your productivity for the good of the God who created you and, and, and the good of others who were created in the image of God. It's this beautiful vision of a redeemed and restored humanity that ends chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, we see kind of a, an abrupt switch where suddenly Paul is going to start talking about God's elective purposes, which is why I think a lot of times people think about Romans 9 through 11 as this kind of weird excursus in the letter, that, it, that it's not really connected to the rest of the letter, that, that somehow Paul just really had a, I don't know, a, a wild burr in his saddle and, and just really wanted to talk about God's elective purposes because he was really smart and liked to talk about those things. But, but the reality is, this is the culmination of the previous eight chapters. Paul has to talk about the elective purposes of God for his readers to understand that God isn't capricious, that God isn't just changing his will, that, that God, God's election is in fact meaningful and real, but it is not an election to privilege. It is an election to responsibility, which is the fundamental problem God's people have always made. When we think of the election of God, we tend to think that God has elected us to a blessing instead of understanding that God has elected us to a responsibility. So in 9 through 11, he's going to unpack that. Now, after that, we come to 12 through 16. 12 through 16, stick with me. 12 through 16 is a wild ride, man. It is about as practical as practical can be. Every message is gonna be like an encouragement and a gut punch all in one, right? It's this beautiful invitation to grow in grace and, and to, to be transformed by grace. And, 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 and I'm looking forward to getting there, okay? But we're gonna navigate the deep waters of 9 through 11 in order to get there. And these three chapters are gonna be dealing with God's elective purposes over human history. And he's gonna spend most of his time in these three chapters confronting his Jewish readers. There is, in chapter 11, um, a lengthy confrontation with the Gentile believers as well, but, but he, he begins definitely with an intense focus on, on his Jewish readers because they thought because they were the elect nation of God that somehow that made them superior to those who they considered non-elect. They completely misunderstood the nature and purpose of God's election. God didn't elect us to make us superior. He elected us to make us servants. He didn't choose us in love so that we could somehow feel like we were better from, than others, but that we might in that love be more humble than anyone else serving all others from a place of deep, deep gratitude because of the blessing of God. We were blessed, Paul tells us, in election that we might be a blessing. You received grace to grow, grace to be forgiven, grace to grow so that you might learn to give grace and become generous in that grace. In this chapter, in these three chapters, Paul presents God's people as a tree a tree that he is growing into a flourishing people made up of all God's people from all time. And that tree is going to be the center point of God's new creation, this, this beautiful, flourishing fullness of life and shared experience. 
but we're going to be looking at the details because in this tree, sometimes God prunes branches and sometimes he grafts other branches in according to his purpose. But his purpose is the same, that through the work of Christ, we might be transformed into the image of Christ, that he might receive his glory from creation and we might be flourishing in the goodness of it. So, drive home my point again. Paul's not exploring God's elective purposes to make us proud of our understanding or to increase the division of the body, to make people judgmental of others because they're, they're not theologically astute enough. Right? His goal isn't to, to make a little sub-tribe of, tribe of Theo bros who are just super proud of everything they know and, and comfortable in judging others who don't know as much. His goal is to actually confront the pride that leads to divisiveness. And that context, I think, is going to help us enter into these chapters with a greater understanding of exactly what he is trying to accomplish, which is freeing us into love. So get ready, because when we get into Romans 9, it's going to be fun. Romans 9 especially, man, that series of of rhetorical questions. It's going to come out as fast, hard, and heavy. So starting next week, we're going to be digging in, and I hope that we are coming ready to be challenged and to be humbled and to be freed into a great experience of God's love. So there you go. That's the introduction to 9 through 11. So come back next week for the rest of it. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to share communion. And... Um, and then we're going to worship God a little bit more. Father, we do thank you for this incredible book, um, the Bible. It is itself a miracle. A book written over a 2,000-year span by around 40 authors in three different languages. A book that tells one story. A story of your redeeming and restoring work of our brokenness and your solution of our sin and of our Savior and we thank you Lord for the book of Romans that allows us to understand more fully your work in creation and Lord I pray that you will pique our desire to understand you that we might love you more fully to dig into the deep things not so that we can be smart or no better than others but that we might know you and love you and I pray Lord that you would also help us deal with our own cultural inclination this, this need for everything to be immediately practical because as we read Romans 9 there's no commands there's not a lot to do but man, there's a lot to believe and to understand and an invitation to growth. And I pray, Lord, that as we enter this book, you would give us eager and humble hearts to receive your word and to grow in your grace and to be set free into the mission of your love. We do thank you that Jesus is the hero of the story, that he died for us and rose again that we might be forgiven and transformed. And we're eager to learn more about him. 
And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.